because I have a cup here that says Boston Red Sox on it. I must be a crazy man because someone gave me a cup again. I did not know that from a few weeks ago, but we solved the problem. We found out the M&Ms were given to someone else. We solved it, but now a person came up to me this morning and gave me another cup. So they're just going to continue to believe someday, some way, somehow I'm going to become a Boston Red Sox fan, and that ain't going to happen. But I did get some M&Ms, so I will keep them, and if anybody wants any kind of hard candy here, just come over and see me. Now, we have to hide this behind here because we don't want anybody to look at this. Okay, so we have been working with a sermon series and, and uh, specifically in prayer, empowered prayer, and we've talked about the different uh, weeks, and the first week we talked about the passion for prayer and the importance of prayer, and we looked at Nehemiah for just a, a short minute in chapter one, and then we looked at his life and specifically talking about how he had the passion to go back to Jerusalem, to see Jerusalem be recovered and restored for the kingdom of God. We talked about the priority of his presence and the desire to want to walk with God, to love him, to have the priority of prayer, because it's essential in our walk with God for the church, for the local church, not only the purpose to make disciples, but also the purpose for us to be praying. And then we looked at last week about the importance of wrestling with God for his blessing. As we're praying, as we're seeking God, as Jacob, as we looked at the life of Jacob, we recognize the importance of what it, it is for, for wrestling with God for his blessing. And now this week we're going to be talking about the manner of prayer. We're going to look at Luke chapter 18, but before we do that, I have a, a quick story for you about a preacher who found a shoebox in a closet. He opened it up and found strange contents. Inside was an egg carton with five eggs. Next to the eggs was a stack of bills that totaled up of over $10,000. Yeah, it's still a lot of money. As soon as his wife walked through the door, he stopped to ask her if she knew anything about this odd combination. Yes, dear, after we got married, I decided that after every sermon you preached, if it was a bad one, I would put an egg in this shoebox. The preacher thought with pride about all the years that had been married and that only five eggs were in the box. But honey, what about the $10,000? Oh, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> honey, I think we're going to go in the egg business. I found a retirement program. It's called Get in the Egg Business for all my bad sermons. We're going to make a load of money. Okay. All right. So, but what is it about this story that's so important for us to grasp? Pride. Every one of us have it. We can be proud, but pride is different from being proud. Pride is something innate, something that we have to grasp and recognize that it could be possibly one of the worst sins we could ever commit in our lives. Benjamin Franklin said this, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. And the beauty of that is that no matter how hard we try to remove pride, it remains. 
And the challenge is always with our walk with God is what does that really look like? I want you to turn to uh, your Bibles to Luke 18, 9 through 14. We have two individuals there, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Because we have to ask, you know, our questions of saying, why would God present these two particular men? And why or how can we learn from this? So we're going to look at two aspects of a person before God or characteristics. One of them is being proud or pride, and another one is being humble or humility. So the first in your worship, if you have your worship outlines with you and your, you, I mean your outlines in your worship folder there, and you have there the first point, it says a person who is proud before God. We're going to look at that for just a moment. Because what does it mean to be proud? Most who are proud assess oneself. When we make a self-evaluation, what are usually the results? Are we able to make a proper assessment as an individual? We'll ask those questions. So look with me, if we could, just really quick to Luke 18. And as it's a parable, we understand that a parable has a heavenly meaning, even though it's an earthly story. And to, to look at this where Jesus has this parable to share... Um, in, our, in our word here, in our scriptures. And so it says this, uh, he also told this parable to come who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We know in verse 10 it says that two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one and another a tax collector. So as we ask that question, the first thing when a person who is proud before God one would find, find confidence in oneself and not in God. So as we look at this, we have to look at that word in verse 9. Because Jesus put this as a highlight here. He says, he also told this prayer to come to some who trusted in themselves. An interesting word in the Greek. It's a perfect active. And as we're looking at this particular passage, and we're looking at verse 9, and we see that it's a perfect active, it's, it's really saying that the, the Pharisee put trust in himself. He put trust in his character, trust in what he did in order to gain righteousness. He looked at his accolades, he looked at what he did for God, he was zealous, he was passionate. And the idea of the, the word, it means to depend or trust and with the Pharisee was confident of his righteousness, it wasn't in the standing of who he was that God would make him righteous or that God would declare him righteous, but his righteousness came from what he did. And so we have to understand because the Pharisee in their back, back, you know, backdrop in the third century B.C., their intention was really well. They, they followed God. They loved him. They followed in, in, in honoring him and the oral traditions. They wanted to bring glory and honor to God. But what happened throughout the centuries, as it got closer to when Jesus was born, they began to see their works and started to hear themselves. They listened to themselves and how righteous they were. They looked at themselves and they started to compare themselves towards others. And, be, and they began to create a tradition, what it was called an oral tradition and traditions for men. That's why Jesus would often make comments about it and look down upon it and judge it because they were creating their own standard of righteousness. In fact, they used the law as a means to do so. 
See, God never intended for the law to be kept in its way of perfection. God in the law of the Old Testament was intending for relationship. And the law and its sanctification in the Old Testament was to draw close to God, not to keep it as a means of standing right with God. And you and I in our sanctification in the New Testament, because we know the Spirit is permanent and dwelling now, we in our sanctification do not walk with God and pray and seek and chase after Him so we can then say, look at me, I'm righteous. We don't intend for that in our hearts. Sanctification, when we're walking with God, is to draw close to Him, to yield to the Spirit of God, to be in tune with God. That's why the Holy Spirit who lives in us is the third person of Trinity. We are to be in tune with God, but when do we grieve and quench the Spirit? It's when we're sinning. And whenever we think, at ever in our time, in our walk with God, in our daily walk, if anything we do makes us more righteous than anyone else, then we return back to a pharisaical thinking in our walk with God. See, that's what the Pharisees were thinking. They were proud. They were confident in what they did. But see, God's desire, the purpose of the law, was what we see in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: 37, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the beauty of what the law is. I, I love, I, I looked up an article, and I saw this gentleman by the name of Mark Allen Williams. He is a, a speaker, a missionary. He's an author, he's a podcaster, he's a blogger, but he blogs on discipleship. And he said, he has an article that says, Four Ways Pride Brings Destruction. And he highlighted something very, very important because he talked about, one, one of the destructions is pride causes overconfidence, which blinds us to our weaknesses and can lead to destruction. See, what happens is when we begin to look at ourselves introspectively and thinking that we are better than someone else, we're blinded to what God is wanting to doing in our lives. We have weaknesses, we have downfalls, we have struggles, we have inadequacies, and we're not able to see them when we allow pride to overcome our lives. It's a dangerous, dangerous pitfall. It's a dangerous journey to go on when we compare ourselves to someone else. That's what they were doing. The second thing he said is pride causes self-focus and repels others. We begin to look at ourselves rather than looking at God, and we find interest in what we do rather than what others are doing. We're not interested in what God is trying to do. Three, pride causes people to reject help they need from others. And so pride can be something that overwhelms us. Lastly, he said, pride is a blinder. I love this. Pride is a blinder that keeps people from realizing they are prideful. See, in our pride, we're blinded that we're prideful. And we're going to talk a little bit about how important it is for us to understand that what's most important is that the results of pride are overwhelming. If you look at a scripture here in Proverbs 8.13, it says this, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Another scripture in Proverbs is 16, 18. We know this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And another one that Solomon wrote, he said, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor, meaning humility. C.S. Lewis says this, he said in his book, The Great Sin, According to the Christian teachers, the utmost evil is pride. Chastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that 
are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And we see that throughout Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar, Hammond, and Esther. We see that pride overwhelms us. And so when you look at verse 10 of Luke 18, you see that he says two men went up to the temple because they're climbing up on the hill to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. You have to understand when a, a man was a Pharisee from the perspective of Jesus, he was not someone who was looked upon as well. But to the nation, to the Israelites, to the Jews and Judaism, they looked up to the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders in whom everybody attained and desired to be like. But the tax collector, no one wanted to be like a tax collector. He was the scum of the earth in the first century. He was representing Rome and beginning to create these ways of manipulating and causing people and robbing them blind. And so we have to understand that that's what's happening. So a man who is proud, we have to, we have to look at with the Pharisee. The man who's proud is one who compares oneself to others. And look what the Pharisee says in verse 11. When he says this, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now the Pharisee stood before God in the inner courts of the temple, and this parable demonstrates that the Pharisee was overconfident. He was assessing himself, which wasn't a good idea. And his confidence created a wrong assessment, yet to himself he thought he was great. But yet Luke, the writer, said he stood by himself. The scholars today would look at this, and there are four different ways in which one would look at it. Even the versions kind of take it differently, the English versions. The NIV says he stood and prayed about himself. The NET says he's standing by himself. ESV said stood and was praying this to himself. And the NASB says, stood and prayed thus with himself. And the question is, most scholars would say that he prayed to himself. And I, I, often I would go with the scholars on this. But I don't know, I'm looking at this a little bit differently. I'm all by myself maybe a little bit, someone else who has this. But I looked at this and I studied this before. And I realized that as a Western American Christian, it's hard to imagine that anybody would speak out loud and put down someone or demean them in front of them. Unless you're Italian, then you would do that. But, but for someone who would go and do that, that was, it's uncommon in our Western American culture. We're individualists. But to the Pharisee, I have to believe he spoke out loud. And I believe that he spoke out loud because he was so full of himself that I don't know about you, but sometimes um, if you're walking, you ever catch yourself talking to yourself every day, all day? Okay. People say, I don't talk to myself. Yes, you do. And you're talking out loud. And so if no one's around, but especially someone, who are you talking to? Oh, nothing. Just myself. I'm talking to myself. But sometimes we have to talk to ourselves, especially as we, as we get older, to remind ourselves of things, to remind ourselves that we're okay, to remind ourselves that it doesn't matter what anyone else says. I'm all right. But I think he was talking out loud and purposely in his heart was trying to demean the tax collector because he was comparing himself. He had to confirm to himself he was still good. You know, there's another verse that Paul talked about in Galatians. Galatians 6, 4, it says, But let 
each one examine his own work, then he can take pride in himself and not compare himself with someone else. See, we often compare ourselves to other people when we want to lift up ourselves. Most who get caught up in sin and in the comparison and the deal, like we compare ourselves often. But I think we compare ourselves because I'm going to just share this with you. I think because we have inadequacies. I think because we're insecure. We lack confidence. We're not overconfident. We go in the other direction. We're afraid that people will be superior over us. We don't, wanna, we don't want others to have control over us. We, in a small way, like to be in control. We're all in need of admitting that. At times we lean towards arrogance because we look at ourselves. Sometimes we even have anger toward God because we say, why would you allow this to happen to me? I'm better than this, Lord. I've served you for many years. Why would you allow this to happen to me? How about the others? I mean, David said it often in the Psalms. He said it, Lord, how long will you allow us to suffer when all the others who are committing sin are not suffering? And that could truly, when we have an assessment of ourselves, it's very easy to criticize and complain about others. Why? Because we're not able to be truthful with ourselves. Why? Because it's painful to admit we need to change. It's painful to think that we have to be corrected. It's painful to think that, wow, Lord, you really need to change me to conform me to the image of Christ. I thought I was kind of pretty good. See, we're too kind to ourselves because we're not able to see our defects, our faults, and our shortcomings. And others are able to see it because they have a proper perspective looking into our our lives. I think that's why, to some of us, God's given us a mate. Because we have to be humbled. We think we have it all together until our spouse talks to us. And then we realize that, okay, we don't. But God uses our spouses to do that, to keep us in check. But here's another thing when someone who's proud before God, just like the Pharisee, keeps an account of what one does. The Pharisee was doing that. Let's just go back again to verse 11. Look with me to verse 11. It says, Then the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus I thank you that I am not like other men. Let me stop there. Because the word man in Greek means anthropos, and it's just generally humankind man. And man stands condemned before God, not based on what he or she commits, or humankind but based on the fact that they stand in positionally discondemned before God. We know of original sin. But what the Pharisee saying is saying this, I thank God that I'm not like other men, meaning I thank God that I'm not condemned. I thank God that I am this righteous, holy person that does well before God. Meaning what he's saying is like, God, I'm not immoral like these other people. I'm not like these other people who are committing adultery. I'm not like others, people who are envious and jealous. Many saying is I'm not even created by God because he stands before God condemned, yet he's trying to convince himself, talking to himself, talking aloud, that he has it all together. And he's like put himself in a new category, unlike man. He's some kind of superhuman man, moral man, holy man, that he doesn't have any immorality in him. See, the righteous man... A Pharisee, a Pharisaical thinking goes to that level. We don't even realize he sets a perfection above God. That's why when you and I, if we're perfectionists, we have to ask that question. Is my perfection, my state of perfection above what God expects of me? 
Too often I've talked to so many people because they don't even realize that they've set a standard higher than God. This man has set a standard higher than God because he stood himself. He didn't even compare himself to God because he compares himself to others. That is this distorted man. That is a man who's lost his mind. And yet he is a man that people desire and attain to be like. We have to be careful even in our walk with God in New Testament that whatever we do, that we never say in our hearts and our minds, wow, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that person over there. Well, I'm sure glad that I've been on this road of righteousness. <laughs> sure glad, Lord, that you have me on your team because you sure need a person like me on your team. Lord, I'm so glad. We could go in our hearts. We can say that in our hearts and we don't even realize. It's not as though we intended to say that, but within our flesh, we can go there. Because this man was going there. And we have to understand that pharisaical thinking will get us nowhere in the kingdom of God. God wants to change us, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. He puts people in our lives so that they can bring assessment in our own lives. And I think that's beautiful to see that we don't want to keep an account of what we do because we'll never get there. So it's important for us to understand. That's why he said, I'll fast twice a week and I give tithes all that I get. I mean, really what it was sta stating there is that it was a requirement that the Pharisees would fast Monday and Thursdays. And they had a true understanding. When they did this, it was a great thing to fast, but why were they fasting? See, the question is not what would they're doing, but what was the motive behind it? And we understand too that they gave tithes, all that they can get. So it wasn't that they even tithed. They even gave more, a portion to the Lord. They gave more of what they were expected to give. But it's not that it's a bad thing to give more than what's expected of you and I. The question is, why are we doing it? What's the motive? Do we want others to find out? Do we look at ourselves and say, wow, I wish those people would just give like me. So we just have to be challenged with us to realize that that could be a proud man before God. But here's what we want to look at, too. Is we understand, too, that the person who is humble before God, because we're going to now look at the other person, the tax collector, and recognize, too, that, that the tax collector was standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, I think the first thing for a person who's humble before God, as we see this tax collector, he recognizes God's position and his power to solve it. He recognizes it. Now look with me again to this passage. Just look with me here and see that he was a tax collector standing afar. A person who's standing afar from God did not believe he had the right to stand anywhere close to God. He couldn't even go into the temple because the temple was the presence of God in, in the first century and before Christ. And so with all that, the tax guy couldn't even stand in the presence of God because he saw that he was a sinner. See, God is more interested in showing us who we are rather than what we can be. God's not interested in trying to show us what we can be more than he's interested in challenging us in who we are. If we recognize our position with God and recognize that he's the one who solves the problems in our lives, we're in a good place. Although he was standing far away, he was in a good place. He was a man of humility, a man that desired to walk with God but didn't know how to get there. And so the Pharisee who claims to know God and walk with God, he wasn't showing him. He was pushing him away. 
But to the man who was a sinner, he was longing to be in God's presence. Wouldn't it have been nice for the Pharisee to call him over, kind of come alongside of him, paracolette, and say, hey, let me show you how to get near to God. But he didn't. He was demeaning him and putting him down and staying far away from that tax collector because he was afraid that if he got anywhere close, he would become unrighteous. I'm just saying that we have to be careful because today as the church, what are we called to do? And we have to be challenged with this because just like Zacchaeus in Luke 19 in the following chapter, it wasn't that he was a tax collector, it was that he was willing to surrender. And Jesus welcomed him in. And so we have to understand too that it's important for us that today the distance between a saint and God is a cry for help. It's not that we're righteous or declared righteous before God. It's because we have the opportunity as a right person who's right standing with God to cry out to him. The tax collector was crying out to God. See, pride, when we create pride, it's like a little building. You ever play with Jenga, the building blocks? And sometimes when you play that game, you have little holes. And if you're not careful when you pull it out, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down and it's, it's just going to fall and collapse. Well, it's like when we're having pride in our lives, we don't realize we're building up these blocks, but there are holes in the middle of that building, and it can shake at any time. And pride could get to where it shakes to where it just falls. But what God is saying is that you and I don't have a strong foundation with pride. We have a stronger foundation with humility. We have a stronger foundation when we recognize who we are and who he is. So secondly, this is what God is calling us to is that recognizing one is powerless to solve it, just like the tax collector, powerless to fix this. That's why he said, I can't even lift up my eyes to heaven. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, but he couldn't. In fact, in the beating of the breast was a sign of lamentation, being lament- just lamenting, surrendering, saying, crying, surrendering, saying, I can't do this, God. See, God desires for one who humbles himself or herself before God. And so recognizing that, we even see that when Jesus was on the cross, there were others, there were crowds that were around, and they assembled for this spectacle. When they saw that he had taken the place, what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. They recognized that Jesus himself, the Son of God, was placed on the cross. They were feeling hopeless and helpless at that moment. And see, that's what we have to understand that God is calling for someone who's humble. Look, he says even in Psalms 34, 18 and 19, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers out of them. And see, that's what we have to understand is that with you and I, God's not interested in what we do. God is not interested in our accolades. God is not interested in how we do it. There's nothing wrong with praying, seeking the Lord, crying out to him, reading his word, giving. There's nothing wrong with all of these things, coming alongside and helping someone. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's the motive behind it? Why are we doing it? We're hoping that someone else sees, like the Pharisee? Or is God changing us and changing our hearts so we'll go near to that tax collector and come alongside of them and say, hey, brother, let me show you how you can draw near to God. Each one of us have to understand that our righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6, but the beauty of it is that God is interested in us, so even if we fail, God is saying, I want to work through you. I am often shadowed with the fact that God, when I look at myself, I have nothing to offer but my faults, 
my inadequacies, my, 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 the fact that I just don't have, I have weaknesses, Lord, that I look at myself and I can't even look at myself. I can't look at myself in the mirror, but Lord, you often say to me, it doesn't matter what I look like. It doesn't matter what I do. It's the fact that you still have chosen me for a purpose and it has nothing to do with me. It has all to do with your glory. And even though he's given me gifts and talents and each one of us gifts and talents, he wants to use us to reach others. And too often we're looking at ourselves, we might not be the proud person, but we might look at ourselves and we lack confidence. And we look at ourselves and we see the insecurities, inadequacies, and God's saying, wait a minute, stop dwelling on your inadequacies. I can do it. You're obviously inadequate, that's why you need my son. You're obviously not able to get there because of my son. And prayer is necessary for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. And that's why he said, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. The place where we need to be is to be reminded every day we're a sinner saved by grace. That there's nothing we can do to attain righteousness. God doesn't love us any more or less than he did yesterday or today or forever. God loves the same at every moment and every time. He's not like man. And he sure enough is not like this Pharisee. God is interested in that. So I want to encourage you as you're walking with God, as I'm walking with God, that we must in a manner before God be careful that we're not proud, but be careful that we're always humble before him. We have a, a video of Heather Bell, our children's director. We asked her to share what prayer meant to her. And I want to just share that with you if we could, if we have that video of what Heather went through at a time in her life. My name is Heather Bell. My relationship with God is a relationship. So I feel like in order to be in right fellowship with Him, communication is important. Through prayer, I feel a lot closer to the Lord. I feel like sometimes He does speak to me in that still small voice, even when sometimes I have no words to say to Him. And He knows that. I mean, He knows all this anyhow. So it's like, why should I pray? Because God knows everything I think. He does, but He wants to know that He's important too. And so I feel like when we stop and we take time from our day and we have that fellowship with him, it really, uh, really helps to make our relationship with him, with him right. So two years ago, right before Matt and I came to this church for the first time, I had been teaching and I had had a really hard year, um, which teachers often do have. And it was kind of at the point where I was using up the happy part of me and the good part of me with students. And then when I'd get home, I felt like I had nothing left to give my kids. And so I finally had to tell Matt, like, I just don't think I can do this for another year. He and I decided that, okay, I'm gonna stay at home for a year. And it was definitely a time where we stepped out in faith because, you know, like financially, we were like, I don't even know if this is gonna work. You know, like I might have to have a job halfway through the year. I resigned from my teaching position, it just changed churches, so it was just a lot of change. And weirdly enough, I felt so at peace. In April, Kathy Shaw had told me that she was going to leave. A couple weeks later, I get this random phone call. I was at Rite Aid and she called me and she was like, hey Heather, um, you know I'm not coming back and moving and have, would you think about this position? And I was like, you know, it like blew my mind because you know, I had been praying to stay home, I stayed home, and it was a hard year staying home. Um, and I, I was kind of looking for something extra to do. And then, um, 
you know, I met with, with Dennis and I was able to join the staff here part-time and I just feel like it was so scary for me to quit my job and um, to trust the Lord, but I felt a peace through the whole process. And, you know, that was an example of when he answered my prayers with it. Uh, I have it, yes. You know, I will, you, you don't have to, to teach anymore in a traditional classroom and I have something else for you. You know, there's a verse that talks about having faith as small as a mustard seed, being able to move mountains. And I know that God is able. I know whatever I ask God, He is able to do. But what I have to remember when I'm praying is it's not about me and it's not about what I want. It's not about my will. Just because we pray for something doesn't mean God's going to grant our request the way that we want it granted. Um, and I just think back um, over the past year, you know, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and um, that was a really, really scary time for me. And, and I spent a lot of time praying there but I'm always fearful that I think of prayer more as a last resort as opposed to something that I should be doing all the time um, just because that's something that I'm called to do. So I'm a work in progress with that, um, but I feel like I'm definitely moving the right way. You know, the last thing that we can, we can uh, be mindful of too is that just as Heather was sharing that she had to humble herself before God, she didn't know what was ahead. She trusted the Lord, she believed God, but she had to humble herself knowing God would solve the problem, to be recognizing he's in control and he's powerful. She compared herself to God, not to others. She focused on the Lord and just like this tax collector, standing before God did not compare himself to others but recognized that he needed God. He humbled himself, prostrated his mind, his heart, and his soul to God because, see, God is God. He's Lord. He's Yahweh. And he's the creator. He's the truth. He's immutable. This morning, even when I was having my little devotion, I just looked at the attributes of God and worshiped him. It's the beauty of God. But the tax collector, although not accepted in society, was a recipient of God's grace and mercy. Each one of us need to know that we are, even our sanctification, we're still in need of his mercy and his grace. We need him because in our stance with God, we fall short. And so the beauty is that God wants to offer his mercy and his grace. See, the person who doesn't compare himself to man but to God is the one who knows he or she can't keep their account anymore. It's too large to keep. It's a debt they can't pay. They know. See, I know as a child of God, there's nothing I can do to attain righteousness in and of myself to make myself more righteous or not. And God loves me less or more. doesn't matter. He, I know he loves me, and he loves me the same. And so that's the beauty. So how do we now demonstrate humility in prayer? If we know humility is the necessary way and the manner in which we must go to God, how do we do this? So first of all, I, I say this, not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. You know, uh, a great verse that we look at in Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 4, God kept Paul humble by being in a, a prison in Rome. And as he's in the lower grounds in prison, he says this, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. See, what he's saying is don't think about, don't think less of yourselves, but think 
less about yourself, meaning don't always put yourself first. Most would say, oh, don't think of yourself at all. That's nonsense. You're supposed to be a steward of God's grace. You are called and accountable before God to think about what you do for the kingdom of God. But too often we place ourselves above God or above others, and God's saying, don't do that. And you know what that word, actual vanity or conceit, really means empty glory. Dogza's glory and we understand, too, when we see that, is that it's kino dogza, because kino is the emptying of. So in the, in the Greek, I say kino dogza. That means empty glory. I don't want to spend time there. That's empty glory. Because the empty glory is thinking I'm better than I really am. Empty glory means that I have to lift myself to make myself more righteous than I really am. Or I look at myself and what I do, and God is only interested in what I do. It's empty glory, too. What we have to understand as well is proclaiming our unworthiness, not all of our sin. Too often we try to, when we do self-evaluation and we're looking at ourselves, we try to compare our sins. We try to say, okay, well, you know, I've got it all together here in this area, but this area might be struggling. That's okay because I have a lot of these areas that I'm doing well, so if I'm struggling over that's okay. See, it doesn't matter. We all stand unworthy before God, but that's the beauty of God. See, there should be confidence in that. We shouldn't look at ourselves and think less of ourselves. We should be confident. Because sometimes we can rationalize in our prayers. It could be this, Lord, I confess my sin of anger toward my friend. I know I shouldn't have reacted this way, but Lord, it was hard. I mean, he embarrassed me and he humiliated me in front of all my friends. He gossiped about me and even tried to get others to come against me. Lord, I know I shouldn't have reacted this way, but he shouldn't act this way either. In fact, Lord, please change him and show him that you love him. Help him to see that what he did was wrong also. I confess my sin in Jesus' name, amen. Some of those prayers can be so subtle. We don't even realize. I say that prayer because sometimes I have to catch myself. Because I am being vulnerable and transparent before the Lord. And I'm asking God, change that person, but change me as well. And God, in the unworthiness in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, when Paul said this, For I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called, an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, the word worthy means to meet a standard, fit, appropriate, competent, qualified, able. Now, just put not in front of that. Not able to meet a standard, not fit, not appropriate, not competent, not qualified. But here's the beauty of it. Watch out now. But then, Colossians 1, 12, and 14, Paul says this. He has qualified us. You see the beauty of it? The strength we should have and the confidence we should have is that we are not fit and appropriate. We don't meet that qualification, but God has qualified us through his son. That's our strength. It's not about us. It's not what I do. It's not how well I do something. It's how well he's doing it in my life. It's just the fact that he wants to choose me for whatever sake. I say, Lord, why me? He says, because of my glory. Why me? Because of my faithfulness. Why me? Because of my gospel. Why me? Because it's my church. Lord, but why me? Because I want to see that which is imperfect, and I want to bring my glory in showing forth what you were once here and how I can make you into something awesome. It's God's work. The bridge is I'm here and God makes me over here. I didn't do anything. God did all the work. All I did was yield and submit and surrender. It's an oxymoron when I say being active in my passivity. Being active in my yielding to God. 
That's the beauty of sanctification. So he qualifies us. I can find comfort in knowing that I'm not qualified, but he qualifies us. Lastly, this, knowing that on your best day, knowing on your best day, good is not good enough to please God. We know that. We see that. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, we know that. It's depravity. We stand before God. We will never be able to be righteous before God in and of ourselves. We stand dead in our trespasses. In which you walked once, Paul said to the Ephesians, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, verse 4, mercy and grace. That's when he qualifies us. See, we have to be reminded that we stand condemned before God, but then we have to be reminded that we stand not condemned before God anymore. Praise the Lord. There's no longer any condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And we can praise God that he has qualified us. So our strength comes in knowing he does the work. It is in God and God alone that we have our righteousness. It's not anything. The Pharisee missed it. The tax collector got it. He humbled himself. See, that's what we have to do. We have to come alongside those who are far away from God and bring them in and draw them in and say, wow. Because, see, this is what I believe as we end this series today. Empowerment doesn't come through power and position, but through humility and prayer. Humbling ourselves before God. God wants to empower us to do a work that only he can do. Look with, this, look with me to 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. It says, likewise. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let me just read verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Even as he says it in James chapter 4, 6 through 10. Submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, in verse 14 of Luke 18, it says, I tell you, this man, Jesus said, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's go in a manner with the Lord, humbled before him. Don't say if there is pride, when there is pride. Catch yourself and say, God, teach me to be humble before you. Let me pray for you. Bow your heads with me if you would. Father, we're reminded today, as the worship team comes up, we're reminded today how important it is for us to walk with you, to love you. God, we recognize we can't fight this anymore and we can't rationalize it anymore. God, we do become a people who are are proud. And we have to be reminded every day of who we are in Jesus. And be reminded of the fact that you've qualified us, even if we're not qualified in and of ourselves. The beauty is that you qualified us. In fact, Lord, help us not to defend a good that no longer exists in us. But the only good we have is through your son, Jesus. 
And so, Lord, as we stand before you saved, set apart in Christ, I pray as we walk with you in sanctification that we would yield and submit and surrender and just confess our sin so that we would not quench the Spirit nor grieve the Spirit, but walk in the newness of life, empowered by you to do the work that you've called us, so that when you change us, we'll be about changing others. God, let us be about discipleship, coming alongside of someone else, drawing that person in, showing them how they can stand near to God. By showing them what they've done, they've humbled themselves before you. So Lord, today, this morning, challenge us in our hearts. This is a hard sermon to receive because you're reminding us that we can be proud. God, change us. Help us to see. Help us to be even a risk taker and saying, God, show me the pride of my life so I can confess it. Lord, we love you and we surrender our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen.